Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness, sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. There's a fine line between wonderful and weird. Things that are wonderful tend to inspire you with awe. You feel warmth and light and admiration. And you may suddenly find yourself believing in goodness and a higher power. I saw a total solar eclipse once. It's exactly how I felt. Maybe you've had a similar experience. But just a few centimeters from wonderful is how you feel when you run across something that is genuinely weird. You still might feel odd, but you might also experience disbelief, confusion, disgust, and you might even feel a little throw up the back of your throat. Or you might laugh. Weird can be funny. Or you might think that something weird is really, really cool. See, there's good weird as well as bad. Wonderfully weird, if you will. It's all in the eye or the ear of the beholder. Let's see where this stuff fits in with you. It's part 10 of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the 10th and final installment of a series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Up until now, each program has had a distinct theme. Over the last nine shows, we've talked about weird legal situations, weird drugs, strange stories from the road in the recording studio, weird sex, and odd issues involving money and fans. But for this finale, we're going to go through 10 things that are just too baffling to be classified into any one of the neat piles that we've constructed. These could be amongst the strangest and most wonderfully weird things that you will have ever heard about music. Ready? Let's begin. We start with the Nine Inch Nails snuff film. Now, let's be clear, no one was killed for sport or for pleasure in any Nine Inch Nails film or video. But for a while, a few people weren't so sure. Back in 1989, Trent Reznor released the first Nails album, Pretty Hate Machine. The first single from the album was Down In It, and a video was required. So in September of that year, Trent and a couple of video directors named Eric Zimmerman and Benjamin Stokes put something together in a warehouse in Cleveland. In the first draft of the video, it appeared that Trent had fallen off a building and died in a pool of blood in the street. The makeup was pretty elaborate and realistic, too. To get the appropriate aerial shots, a camera was tied to a helium weather balloon. They started the camera rolling and let the balloon float up. 
But then the rope holding the camera and the balloon snapped and everything just kind of floated away. Some 200 miles later, a farmer found the balloon and the camera in his field. He thought it was some kind of surveillance deal. Maybe the DEA was looking for fields of marijuana or something. So he took everything to the cops. When they had a look at the footage, all they saw was Trent lying broken and bloody in the street. Other people could be seen in weird outfits walking away from the body. These, of course, were the other members of the band in costume for the video. But the cops, who had no idea what was going on, had a different reaction. My God, they said, this is a snuff film. It's some kind of weird gangland cult killing. Call the FBI. So they did. Forensic experts pored over the film and came to the conclusion that, yes, it did show a real rotting corpse. Whoever that is has been lying there for at least three weeks. Look at the decomposition. Um, eventually, though, things were, were sorted out. No one died in the making of the original Down In It video. Uh, and sadly, I don't think the general public has ever had a chance to see this particular version. Once they lost that first version, they just reshot something else. The alleged Nine Inch Nails snuff film. Too weird for words, item number one. Item number two has to do with the Ramones and the feud that existed between Joey, the singer, and Johnny, the guitarist. Although the Ramones were portrayed as brothers in this punk rock gang, the truth is that they pretty much hated each other. Johnny was the de facto leader, the chief strategist and the disciplinarian of the Ramones. He made most of the business decisions, made declarations about what everybody wore on stage, when they'd practice, and the makeup of every single set list. Johnny was also the one who scrupulously documented every single one of the 2,262 gigs the Ramones ever played. The problems began in 1978 when Johnny began to insist that he and drummer Tommy Ramone take care of all the media interviews. That's because he thought that Joey and Dee Dee Ramone came off poorly, making the band look dumb. Then there was the matter of their political differences. Johnny was a hardcore Republican. He loved Ronald Reagan, George Bush Sr., and George Bush Jr. Joey was exactly the opposite, a Democrat, a liberal, and anti-Reaganite. But the real problem surrounded a woman named Linda Danielle. Linda used to be Joey's girlfriend, the love of his life. But then Johnny caught her fancy, and he wooed her away from Joey. Eventually, Johnny and Linda got married, and Joey never, ever, ever forgave Johnny for that. And they stopped talking. Forever. Any kind of verbal communication between Johnny and Joey virtually stopped by the beginning of 1981. And it stayed that way. This feud remained unresolved with Joey's death on April 15, 2001. Even when Joey got really sick and was on his deathbed, Johnny didn't really see the point of talking to him. And Johnny hung on to the hate until he died on September 17, 2004. So imagine that. The singer and the guitarist, two of the founding members of one of the most important bands of all time, didn't speak to each other for 20 years through thousands of gigs and at least 12 albums. But it's not like they didn't communicate. Take this song from 1981. It was liberal Joey's shot against conservative Johnny's theft of his girlfriend. That's the real story behind The KKK Took My Baby Away. The KKK took my 
Joey Ramone shot against his arch-rival, Johnny Ramone. Ultra-weird new rock fact number two. Number three has to do with Alex James of Blur. When Blur's extended hiatus began in 2004, everybody in the band went on to do their own thing. Damon Albarn became occupied with gorillas and his experiments with African music. Drummer David Roundtree focused on an animation company. Graham Coxon was already on his own releasing solo albums. And bassist Alex James concentrated on making cheese. You heard me. Alex became, in the words of some, the poster boys for the renaissance of British cheesemaking. I know this sounds like a Monty Python sketch, but I'm this, this is true. Alex moved to the country, the Cotswolds actually, where he immersed himself in the cheese business. Britain apparently has more varieties of cheese than even the French now, so it's a growth industry, which, unlike the music business, is, well, you can see why Alex made that choice. And he's very, very, very good at making cheese. Alex's specialty is a variety he calls Little Wallop. It's made by wrapping goat's cheese in a vine leaf. The farm on which he lives features more than 400 sheep, all valued for their milk, which, of course, is turned into cheese. So how exactly does one go from being a drunken, debauched Britpop star to respected cheesemaker? Well, apparently you can blame it on the Japanese. Early in Blur's career, they found that they were quite popular in Japan. When they were about to tour there for the first time, they were asked, you will have to let everybody know what you like because the fans will want to give something to you, presents. Alex, drunk as always, said, I want cheese. And from that point on, whenever they went to Japan, he was bombarded with cheese from fans. This fed into what was already a sizable cheese fetish. When he moved to the country, Alex had no idea what to do, but then the man who managed his farm suggested that they rebuild an old outhouse, yes, you heard me, and turn it into a cheese house. Maybe this is where it gets its flavor. Anyway... This is where he now makes a soft cheese called Geronimo, which is named after its oldest son. There's another cheese there called Churchill Lady, Rotten Bastard, and Mad Bitch. He's also working on a triangular variety he wants to call Wedgie. He even did a series of videos called The Cheese Diaries for the Guardian newspaper. So, Alex James, rock star, drunkard, country gentleman, champion cheesemaker. Life after blur equals cheese, apparently. Unclassifiably weird thing number three. When we come back to complicated and deeply conspiratorial things from two rather mysterious bands. This is part 10 of a series called 100 Weird Things About New Rock, and we're sorting through one last list of strange things that we couldn't seem to slot into any of the previous nine programs. Item number four is one of those wonderfully weird things. It's known amongst Radiohead fans as the binary theory or the tenspiracy. It's a bit complicated, so, so try and follow me on this. Begin by picking one of the following. Radiohead is a band that is A, fastidiously meticulous about everything they do, or B, have way too much time on their hands, or C, all of the above. Well, if you answered C, you're right. In this day and age, releasing an album just isn't enough. You need to do stuff that will engage your fans on a much deeper level, which is exactly what Radiohead did over a 10-year period between OK Computer in 1997 and In Rainbows in 2007. So let's work backwards. How many tracks on In Rainbows? 
10. How many letters in In Rainbows? 10. When was it released? October 10th, the 10th day of the 10th month. And it was made available for download on a number of servers. How many? 10, allegedly. The album's existence was announced on October the 1st, 10 days before its release. And this announcement was signaled by 10 cryptic messages to fans, each of which included liberal use of the letter X, which, of course, is the Roman numeral for 10. But there's more. The theory suggests that In Rainbows and OK Computer are meant to complement each other. Some fans believe that Radiohead wants us to combine the two albums into one big listening experience. You're supposed to start with Airbag from OK Computer and then move to 15 Step from In Rainbows. Then you go back to OK Computer for Paranoid Android and then over to In Rainbows for Body Snatchers. Kind of like shuffling a deck of cards. Fans believe that the songs and lyrics flow mysteriously well back and forth, especially if you crossfade each song by 10 seconds. But others who have tried this dispute that it works. A listener named Kevin did some research with a mathematical progression known as the divine proportion. This is a geometric ratio found everywhere in nature. It's also known as the golden mean, the magic ratio, and it's the foundation for something known as the Fibonacci series. It's the key to apparently many things in the cosmos. I won't go into all the intricacies because this isn't a math class, but believe me when I tell you that this ratio is equal to 1.618. Let me read you what Kevin sent to me. If you apply the divine proportion by taking the entire length of in rainbows in seconds and divide it by 1.618, you get a timestamp that places you at 2 minutes and 49 seconds into Reckoner, which is a major crescendo in that song, and most importantly, has Tom's vocals in the background changing from ooh to in rainbows right at that exact moment. I had to do the math myself to be sure, and it's valid. It sent chills up my spine. Now, before you dismiss this, a mole deep inside the Radiohead camp seems to suggest that none of this is a coincidence. Tom York is apparently most amused at observing the theorists at work. It's quite possible that Tom will sit quietly for a few more years yet, but meanwhile, don't be surprised if this builds and builds and builds. Radiohead from In Rainbows, one of the albums at the center of the alleged Tenspiracy. Unclassifiably weird thing number four. Wonderfully weird thing number five is similarly intricate. It's Tool and their fake pseudo-religion slash philosophy called Lacrimology. This is the study of crying, something that fits in very well with Tool's repeated themes of suffering. Essentially, lacrimology states that humans cannot develop or evolve in any way, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, without experiencing pain. Tool maintains that they discovered this science through the writings of Ronald P. Vincent, who wrote a book back in the 1940s called A Joyful Guide to Lacrimology. He used to be a crop duster, but turned into a philosopher after moving from Kansas to Hollywood after his wife was dismembered in, quote, a bizarre snowplow accident. But we need to get this straight. The only assurance that we have that this book and Ronald P. Vincent ever existed comes from Tool. The band has never, ever come clean on any of this either. That's strange enough. But where it gets uber weird is when you look at how fans have taken the basics of this theory and have developed it into something very serious, very complex, and very scholarly. 
They've created something here that isn't terribly dissimilar to the talking cure treatments advocated by Sigmund Freud in his development of psychoanalysis. This whole theory goes that once repressed trauma is released, maybe through crying, which could be a sort of therapy, a person's mental, spiritual, and physical condition improves. Tool is not your average band. They may be weird, but you've got to admire their attention to detail. with Vicarious from their 10,000 Days album. Another song rooted, allegedly, in their fake religion-slash-philosophy of lacrimology. This provides a nice segue into weird item number six, the Church of Kurt Cobain. On May 29, 1996, a dude named the Reverend Jim Dillon founded a church in Portland, Oregon. Its liturgy and Eucharist was based on the teachings of of Kurt Cobain, which could be found in the lyrics of Nirvana songs. Naturally, a press release went out and the media bit. Now, these days, there are a number of churches that hold U2 services, where U2's messages of hope and love are used to underscore traditional religious messages. You can buy that, but a church of Kurt Cobain? But the Reverend Jim was insistent. He said songs like Rape Me were actually cries for help and about brotherly love. This story got a lot of play when it first broke on May 29, 1996. The local newspaper, The Oregonian, gave it front-page play with a big banner headline. MTV picked up on it, and so did the ABC Evening News with Peter Jennings. And uh, I might have mentioned it at the time, too. I, I can't remember. However, it was a hoax. The truth is that all this originated with a local radio station, which staged a contest to see if listeners could get The Oregonian to print a fake story. Guess which fake lister won the contest? Yes, it was a guy named Jerry Cattell, otherwise known as Jim Dillon. Um, excuse me, the Reverend Jim Dillon, founder and chief preacher of the Church of Kurt Cobain. So, what was the point here? Well, in addition to wanting to win the contest, Jerry wanted to make a statement about the shallowness of the mass media and the idolatry of celebrity. Uh, good one, Jerry. Moving on to unclassifiably weird item number seven, we have an 80s band called Sig Sig Sputnik. This was a group which based its entire career on selling out. In fact, it was their goal to raise selling out to an art form. Music was secondary to hype, packaging, image, costumes, hair, slogans, and making money. It was pretty in-your-face and shocking. Sig Sig Sputnik didn't even bother putting together a demo tape to get their record deal. All they did was show a bunch of executives a video containing a bunch of clips from science fiction movies. The feeding frenzy was substantial, and the advance from EMI records was very significant. However... The people who did the signing weren't apparently tipped off by the band's main slogan, which was, Fleece the World. Oh, and did I mention that several members had almost zero musical ability? I mean, they looked great, but they couldn't play. Before the album came out, they auctioned off advertising space between the tracks of their 1986 debut album entitled Flaunt It and Company's Bit. Not only did Studio Line from L'Oreal and ID Magazine buy space on the external album artwork, but commercials were embedded in the album itself. Despite all the hype, however, the album did not do so well, and Sig Sig Sputnik broke up after their second album. People thought that the band was nothing but crash commercialism, which they were. But here's the thing. 
With the way the music industry is going these days, maybe they were just ahead of their time. From 1986, here's Sig Sig Sputnik with their one true hit, Love Missile F-111. The crass and commercial Sig Sig Sputnik with Love Missile F-111 from 1986. Gotta respect their honesty when it comes to selling out. Three more bits of weirdness yet to come. Item number eight involves what, or rather who, might be in the air if you ever land at Heathrow Airport in London. Hold tight. We're down to the last three stories in our series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. The death of former Sex Pistols Sid Vicious on Groundhog Day of 1979 has been well documented. While he was awaiting trial on charges for murdering his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, in some kind of heroin fog, he went to his mother's place for a spaghetti dinner. As a present for her boy, Anne Beverly, affectionately known as Ma Vicious and a registered addict herself, thoughtfully scored a little bit of smack for dessert. She gave him a taste before bed, but that wasn't enough for Sid. When everyone was asleep, he rifled through his mum's purse for the rest, took it, OD'd, and died. That's weird, but it's not the story I want to tell. After Sid's funeral, Ma Vicious had her boy cremated. This would be on February 7, 1979. It's a very private ceremony in New Jersey at the Garden State Crematory. The story is that two weeks later, Ma took Sid's ashes in an urn with her back to London. Upon arrival at Heathrow, she was allegedly drunk. She tripped and fell and spilled her boy's ashes in the terminal, some of which were embedded into the carpet and then sucked up into the ventilation system. Rumor has it that Sid dust still circulates throughout Terminal 4. Those who know what happened say this is not true. Before returning to England, Ma took a side trip to Nancy's gravesite in Philadelphia, where she spread Sid's ashes. What is true, however, is that New York police tipped off London police that Ma Vicious was coming home. They followed her to her house in Notting Hill Gates. The place was raided, drugs were discovered, and she was arrested. Ma tried to get into the music business herself and actually performed a few gigs in her own band, but nothing came of that except a few articles in the music press. Ma Vicious suffered through ill health for years. She had a very bad back and had a hard time walking and even eating. Then, in September 1996, she wrote some letters, wrote some checks, and carefully put her affairs in order. Then she sat down in her favorite chair, downed a ton of painkillers, tranquilizers, and booze, and was found dead on September the 6th of 1996. Item number nine actually brings us back to Courtney Love. Did you know that Kurt Cobain was actually husband number two for Courtney? This is something that seems to be lost to history. In 1989, Courtney began flirting with a punk transvestite singer named Falling James Moreland. He was the boyfriend of Jennifer Finch, who had just joined a new L.A. band called L7. Courtney thought he was pretty cool because he was the lead singer for this extreme band called Leaving Trains and they released a series of albums on Black Flag's SST label. One night, James picked up Courtney after another night of stripping. Remember, this was back in the day when Courtney worked as a part-time peeler. And for some reason, she said, I dare you to go to Las Vegas with me and marry me. So they headed east, drank a lot of cheap cocktails, and then tied the knot at an all-night chapel. Hey, marry a blonde, floozy, drunk stripper to a transvestite punk? Listen, they've seen stranger things in Vegas. When Courtney finally sobered up, she realized that this was a pretty big mistake. They were eventually divorced a few months later, but not before Falling James produced the first single for Courtney's new band. 
This was a group that was supposed to have been called Sweet Baby Crystal Powered by God. I'm not kidding about that. Sweet Baby Crystal Powered by God. But by the time the record came out, they were called Whole. Oh, and the, uh, the name of the song that James produced? Retard Girl. Hole, featuring Courtney Love, who probably believes in the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas more than most. Last weird story of this series. Everyone knows who Stephen Hawking is, right? He's the cosmologist in the wheelchair with the voice box, black holes, a brief history of time, Lucasian professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge. That dude. The most famous scientist since Einstein and one of the smartest guys on the planet. Well, Professor Hawking is a Depeche Mode groupie, big fan of the band. All through the 1990s, Professor Hawking had his assistant write letters to Depeche Mode's management company to ask if he could possibly meet the boys backstage after a show. Letter after letter was sent, but no one ever replied. Finally, Stephen asked his assistant to contact Depeche Mode's record company, who then contacted the band. And finally, a reply came back. We're always getting letters from this guy trying to get free tickets. Who the hell is he anyway? No word on whether Professor Hawking ever got to meet his musical heroes, although there is a story that his son got to work co-op with their label. And there you have it, 100 weird things from the world of new rock. Strange recordings... Odd personal secrets, wacko fans, queer drug experiences, unusual legal and sexual circumstances, and extraordinary examples of excess. Again, I'll say it. Weirdness is in the eye of the beholder. You may have considered some of what you heard to be completely normal. If that's the case, please don't come near me. I'd be very afraid. Thanks for hanging in through all this weird stuff. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Additional help from Natalia Ribeiro. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.